Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Good morning. It is Tuesday, March 30th. You are listening to the College Football Daily. My name is Lance Glynn. This is the second episode I am hosting. Of course, usually I produce this really fun, informative, and entertaining podcast, but I enjoy hopping on and talking college football. So I said, hey, Trey's a little busy today. Why not hop on and host once again? I am joined right now on today's episode by Brandon Marcello, National College Football Writer for 24-7 Sports. Brandon, thanks so much for coming on and giving me some time today. Absolutely, Lance. So, Brandon, I wanted to have you on because you had quite a few in-depth conversations with some of college football's first-year head coaches, to name really all of them, Gus Malzahn, Josh Heupel, Shane Beamer, Jed Fish, Brett Bielema, Clark Lee, Kane Womack, Andy Avalos, Blake Anderson and Terry Bowden. I want to start with exactly what you did, what you learned, you know, what you were looking to find out, kind of go through this series you put together. What were you, I guess, aiming for when you decided to to really dive into this feature? Yeah, you know, the idea, I mean, it kind of just comes from the the curiosity of what's it like when you take over a program, whether it's big or small, in those first couple of months in the offseason, and particularly these days when we're in a pandemic and coming out of it, it looks like, and things are a little bit different how you have to handle things as a head coach with college football. And, you know, they can't go recruiting. So they're trying to make inroads with people without meeting them face to face. And they're a first year coach. So I kind of wanted to go into that, but also see if there was any comparisons to be made among these coaches of say like a Gus Malzahn, who's obviously already been a head coach before at a big program. Now he's at UCF didn't take really any time off and now he's there but how's that difference say with you know a jet fish who's at arizona after being in the nfl for a while and has never been a head coach on the college level what are the differences there and what's what's the same so i wanted to pick these guys' brains on that and also of course discuss the the inner workings of their own team and their personnel and their roster going into next year but i guess the behind the scenes you know logistical aspect of being a head coach really interests me when they go into a new job And let's start with some of those similarities and differences. You know, as you were talking with all these coaches, what were some common denominators, some, as I said, similarities, some common perspectives that you found between these coaches, whether they involved on-field discussions or off-field, more recruiting-centric discussions? These guys just have no time in the day and they, and they, someone's always pointing them to where they have to go and setting things up for them and keeping them on schedule. They don't really have any control over their life other than here's what my schedule needs to look like. This is what I want to do. Direct me to that to make sure I'm still on schedule. They all have handlers of some sort to deal with that, whether it is at a small school like ULM, you know, which has the worst athletics budget among FBS schools and they have football programs or say at a place like Tennessee where it's a national program and and one of the most expensive to run. And it's, it's nothing, not, not the old saying, but you can't buy time with money. And so these guys all share one aspect and that they don't have enough time uh, to do, to do everything they want to do. And, you know, the inner workings of that, where they try to share the load of, of this work, You know, it's not necessarily just your assistant coaches, it's your administrators, but also as we've seen over the last five to 10 years, the growth of support staffs where these 
these support staffs are just astronomically huge. Where like at a place like Alabama, you know, you've got like almost like a whole office building almost that's just filled with support staff workers that help break down film, you know, set things up with high school kids and and scout and all that stuff. And we're starting to see that even at these smaller programs, even at Louisiana Monroe, where, as I mentioned, Terry Bowden, legendary coach, but he takes over a program that is just absolutely dirt poor in a lot of ways. And so he's having to hire students as his support staffer. So guys that would, you know, Alabama gets a Butch Jones, you know, as a support staffer, whereas at ULM, they're, they're, they're hiring a kid who's probably 19, 20 years old that's still in school there that might not have a lot of experience being a support staffer, but to be able to compete on the level that you want to, whether it's even in the Sun Belt or the SEC, you got to have a lot of people breaking things down and handling a lot of the office work, but also in the scouting and breaking down film because the more voices, someone will filter that all down. It's like it's like a fire hose going off, but they have filters to make sure that only the most important stuff get to the head coach or even the position coaches. And that's kind of what all these programs have become. They've become, I wouldn't say many companies, but they are companies. You know, they they are the largest company in that town in a lot of respects, especially if it's a, a small college town. What I found so interesting about the feature as a whole is that you have coaches like uh, Gus Malzahn and an Andy Avalos who are trying to take their programs that next step, right? Trying to get a group of five team into the playoff. You also have coaches like Josh Heupel, like Shane Beamer, like Jed Fish, who are coming into programs that need to be rebuilt in Arizona, in South Carolina, and in Tennessee. What about some of the differences that you found that these coaches talked about, whether it was a coach obviously looking to take the next step or a coach that's coming in to a program that you know needs to be built once again from the ground up? You know, it's interesting, like the most difficult step really as a coach is not rebuilding a program. It really isn't. A lot of coaches are able to do it and show improvement. The issue for these guys is when they do get that improvement, taking the next step. So whether you're like, say, Tennessee with Josh Heupel, say let's he gets them back to winning seven or eight games. That's not going to be the most difficult thing, even with the NCAA cloud hanging over them from the previous regime. The most difficult thing for them is going to be getting from eight wins to 10 wins. That's going to be the most difficult thing. That's the most difficult thing and to do it consistently. And that's what kind of when you look at the group of five, that's where Boise State and UCF are. You know, UCF caught all of our attention in 2017, went undefeated, defeated Auburn in the Peach Bowl, labeled themselves as the national champions and they got all that media attention but since then you know they've kind of dropped off a little bit they're still winning 10 games on average a year or whatever but they're not in the new year six conversation as much and they're definitely not in the playoff conversation and as everybody who's listening to this they know no group of five schools ever made the four-team playoff they've never made the bcs championship game but they've been knocking on the doors in the year six team and to be able to get to that point you don't just have to you know go undefeated one season, you probably have to go undefeated two years or maybe even three years in a row or a season mixed in there with one loss to be taken seriously. And so a program like UCF, they haven't had that consistency of doing that. And that is so difficult to do at any program. Meanwhile, Boise State, we saw where they they were so close. I mean, everybody wants to label them as the, the underdogs upset in Oklahoma and doing all that. But that is a program that is a powerhouse that was so close to breaking 
through into the playoff conversation or the BCS championship conversation, but they started going down and going, winning 10 games, you know, 11 games, having one loss here or there. And when you're in the Mountain West, it's just not going to cut it. And under their previous coach, Brian Harson, they kind of took a step back, a, like a half a step back, where they went to a, a New Year's Six game in his first or second year there. But since then, they haven't been back. They haven't been in the national conversation. They haven't finished the season in the top 10. It's definitely not the Chris Peterson days where they were in the top five a couple of seasons and knocking on the door. So the most difficult step for these two coaches, Andy Avalos and Gus Malzahn, is that the expectations are already there. You better win nine games or 10 games a year, but you also better take that next step to get these programs into the playoff conversation, if not into the playoff. And that's not an impossible ask, but it's a much, much more difficult ask than, say, Josh Heupel at Tennessee, where he's got to maybe not got to, but he would like to get back up to seven or eight wins here in the next couple of years. Certainly difficult considering the roster issues and everything they're dealing with at Tennessee. But I think it's much more difficult for these new coaches at Boise State and UCF, these group of five schools where, I mean, listen, if you win nine or eight games there, it's kind of a disappointment. And those are crazy expectations. Joined by Brandon Marcello on the 24-7 Sports College Football Daily Podcast. We will dive into some of the discussions when we come back. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search... The rest is football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets. The Final Four is on Saturday, and you may be wondering, how do I actually watch these games? Go to the CBS Sports app on your connected TV or phone. From there, you'll see every tournament game available to watch. Think of it like a gateway to all the action. So download the CBS Sports app now so you never miss a minute of the NCAA tournament. So, Brandon, let's get into specifics, right? Shane Beamer now at South Carolina. You spoke with him about taking over in Columbia. I'm curious, did he mention anything about the pressure he feels because of who his dad is? Does he feel the pressure to live up to, I should say, Frank Beamer's success? You know, granted, his dad did everything at Virginia Tech as opposed to in the SEC where Shane will have his challenges to face. Yeah, we talked, the bulk of our conversation was really about that, about how he's lived his life really with a, you know, a chip on his shoulder, even if maybe the perception that, hey, everybody in town in Blacksburg, Virginia, or even when he became an assistant coach and now the head coach at South Carolina, that, hey, this kid only has what he has and has achieved what he's achieved because of his father. He's living off his father's name. And the conversation was so interesting to me because he says he remembers hearing that type of chatter when he was uh, playing baseball and was in left field and was named the starter. He remembers people going, yeah, he's the only reason why he's starting at Blacksburg High in left field is because of his father. And so he walked on at Virginia Tech as a long snapper. Played there, played the national championship game in 1999, and that was his last game, and he had had a decision to make. You know, his dad said, hey, you can come here and be a graduate assistant, get your coaching career started, or you can go off on your own, do your own thing. And he said, I got to go off on my own, do my own thing. I got to get out from his shadow and learn from other people outside my father. One, so I can get this perceived slight against me, maybe off my shoulder a little bit, but also to to learn more from from others. And, you know, he admits, he goes, listen, I, I got my foot in the door because of my father. I got was able to get a job as a grad assistant at Georgia Tech because of my dad. He knows people, but that doesn't mean 
mean anything two, three years down the road because you're going to keep your job or move up in the business based off the way you work. People aren't going to keep hiring you just because of your name. They don't owe anything to Frank Beamer and it's not going to hurt or affect them when they're the head coach at, say, Mississippi State, when Frank Beamer's at Virginia Tech. It's just not really going to affect things. So, you know, Beamer had to work his way up and goodness, it took him 20, 21 years to become a head coach. It isn't like he was a assistant for four years and then became a head coach at a power five program. It took him 20 years. And so it's a very interesting conversation. You guys go check that out. Uh, if you want I think it's on our 24 seven sports, YouTube channel, the full conversation. And then of course our story, if you Google that at 24 seven sports, but you know, he's now at South Carolina. He understands the landscape there because he was an assistant coach under Steve Spurrier and was the recruiting coordinator there when they started landing all those big four and five star guys within the state and in the region. He understands the job. But still, he took that job and a lot of South Carolina fans and people nationally were kind of like Shane Beamer, oh, the Frank Beamer's son. He's never even been a coordinator before. He's just been a tight ends coach, a position coach at Oklahoma most recently. How, why does he deserve this head coaching gig? And But you talk to people in the industry, people love him. I mean, OU fans there believe that when Lincoln Riley, if he were to say, go the NFL and become a head coach someday, which some people seem to think they wanted Shane Beamer to be the guy that steps up to be the head coach. So, you know, sometimes these head coaches, I mean, listen, we always talk about head coaches being paranoid, but it's nice to be able to talk to a head coach like Shane Beamer, who readily admits, maybe he won't admit he's paranoid, but he admits, hey, listen, I got a chip on my shoulder. It's cliche or whatever, but it drives me every day because I hear I hear the talk and I understand the, per, the perceived road that I took when I know it's it's much different. And I guess the only way to really prove these people wrong is simply by winning football games. And then, you know, you have someone in Josh Heupel, his hire, Tennessee, was kind of reacted to with a mixed bag by the fan base and the media. What did you get from him as he takes over in Knoxville and tries to get Tennessee out of the mess that they've put themselves in over the last few years? Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I mean, he's very much at the the ground floor, if not the basement, with that job and trying to get that program built back up. I mean, there's still some uncertainty about what's going to happen there as far as maybe scholarship reductions or anything with NCAA investigation. But, you know, he's trying to just take it like, here's my roster I've got now. And then like any coach, how do I fill these holes, fill some of these voids over the next year or two, and maybe get this thing competitive to where they're going to a bowl game, you know, in a year or two. Now, Tennessee fans don't want to hear that. They want to win now. But the realistic approach for this job is patience because Tennessee has failed because they've been impatient uh, since the Phil Fulmer years. So they just, they're not really giving a lot of these coaches time. Butch Jones had some time, but it's almost as if, you know, when Lane Kiffin was there for a year and left, it was almost like they were like burned so much by that. And they're like, you know what? We'll just go get another coach. And if that doesn't work, we'll get another one and another one, another one. And not really being patient about it. Now, having said that, I understand the criticism with Josh Heupel when it comes to recruiting. Recruiting is the lifeblood of everything in college football. And if you don't have top 25 classes in the SEC, you're just not going to be competitive. Let's face it. And you got to consistently have top 25 classes. And listen, Heupel, when he was at UCF, the recruiting classes there the last couple of years were not very good. I mean, it just weren't. Go look at the 24-7 sports composite and how they ranked even within their own conference. And so 
he goes to Tennessee where, you know, obviously the competition is much greater, even on the recruiting trail. And if he wants to prove himself early, one, of course, win some games first year or two, but he better start recruiting at a much better and higher success rate, even with this NCAA cloud hanging over the program. And he understands that, but man, he is still in the early days of trying to figure things out there. And I really like Josh Heupel. Um, you know, of course, everybody knows him from OU, but I started, he really jumped on my radar when he was at Mizzou as the offensive coordinator. He turned that offense completely around. And I think this offense is going to look better and is going to be much more successful. I just don't know if it's going to be something that like they just carry them and they somehow have a one of the top three quarterbacks in the SEC and, and suddenly they're winning eight games. This is going to be a very, very slow process for them. Brandon, last one for me. Look, Blake Anderson went through tragedy at Arkansas State when his wife, Wendy, passed away in 2019. Now at Utah State, what did he say about making the move to Logan and moving away from Arkansas State and everything that that school and that that program meant to him? Yeah, you know, after his wife died, the athletics director there, who's now at UCF, by the way, um, you know, they kind of knew and had been communicated that, listen, he's probably looking to leave or get out here soon. And he was a finalist for the Mizzou job a year ago. He wanted a change of scenery because, I mean, Jonesboro is a medium-sized town. It's not. It's in a small town if, if you live in a metro, obviously. And I've been there several times and driving around there, I can see how if you drive by a restaurant or park or something, the only thing you think about is, oh, I remember taking my wife there or this time and having all these memories pop back up. And it's very clear to me why he needed to leave for his own personal well-being. And so that Utah State job came open, not immediately, but put feelers out there. He knew the former coach there, Matt Wells, you know, and got some recommendations. And, and to Utah State, it was a no-brainer. This is a guy who's been winning, you know, in the Sun Belt and done very well at Arkansas State, been there seven years, and it was ready for him. It was time for him to move on. And, you know, he's about to get married. Um, he met a, a new life mate when he was struggling emotionally in the wake of his wife's passing. And they had both recently lost people in their lives and they were at the, at the same church and they started to connect via social media and just talking a lot. And then one day they just realized that they liked each other and, and now they're getting married this spring. And so, you know, this is a way for him to start his life, personal life over, but also you know, taking over a job where you obviously can win at Utah State, but more importantly for him, that I think, you know, life is much more important than any job or coaching job, obviously. And I think we lose sight of that with coaching because all we talk about is X's and O's and wins and losses. But for him, he had to he had to get out of that town because, I mean, it, it, he saw his wife everywhere. And that's got to be so, so painful. And now Blake Anderson, of course, makes the move from Arkansas State to Utah State. You can follow him on Twitter at BMarcello. Brandon, thanks so much for coming on and giving me some time today. Thanks for having me. Make sure to rate, review, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. We put out a new episode every single day. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lance Glenn. Trey will be back tomorrow. We'll talk to you guys Wednesday for the next edition of the College Football Daily. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.